What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Warrior Soul Podcast. My name is Chris Albert. This podcast is here to deliver tools, tactics, strategies, and ideas to the help the U.S. military veteran community and anybody else willing to listen to live their best lives. Um, my guest today is a very strong woman. Her name is Michelle Black. She is the author of Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth. And in 2017, her husband, Brian, who was a Green Beret, was on patrol with 10 other teammates in Niger. And they were ambushed. They were hunted down by 100 to 200 ISIS terrorists. And they were killed. And at that point, Michelle's life came crashing down, a life she built up with her husband, her and her two sons had to figure out a way to keep going. Uh, And a bunch of other things happened. Somewhere along the line, this incident turned into a national incident. So Michelle's personal tragedy was then spurted across the news. And in a very public altercation between the President of the United States and another Gold Star widow, the media's attention turned away from the warriors who were killed, and it got put on to politics. And then from there, things just kept happening. Um, An ISIS propaganda video of Michelle's husband, Brian, being killed along with three other of his teammates uh, was released, and CBS promptly published it. And that put Michelle and her two sons and Brian's father and mother and all of the other Gold Star families who lost loved ones that day into an absolutely horrible position where the video of their loved ones being killed was being published across the internet and still continues to be published and shared across the internet to this day. And then there's another aspect to this story, which is why was a team of 11 Green Berets sent out without support, without Kazovac, into a situation where there was a possibility that they could be ambushed by such high numbers. And to this day, nobody has ever answered for that. The only thing that's happened is they have tried to pawn the blame off onto the men who were there that day. And it is an absolutely horrible situation. And reading Michelle's book, which is fabulously written, by the way, an absolutely amazing piece of work. I could feel her pain. I could feel her frustration. And that definitely comes out during this interview. Um, Like I said, Michelle is an extraordinary woman. I have so much admiration for her. And I think that you will get a lot out of this conversation and learn a lot from her in terms of resilience and continuing to push forward and and never quitting. And without further ado, I'm going to stop yapping my gums here and let's get into this conversation with Michelle Black 
the author of Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth. Okay. Michelle Black, welcome to the Warrior Soul Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be here. You know, I, I was telling you before we got started uh, hitting record, I've been reading your book, Sacrifice, uh, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth. And, you know, the, the story, I mean, there, there's multiple facets of the story. There, there's your personal story, your personal journey uh, with your husband. Then there's also this kind of national story that was going on. And then there's also the, this idea that, you know, a team of Green Berets was sent into hostile territory without proper support, and which is an, another facet of the story that I think we need to talk much more about. Um, but uh, I want to start kind of give a, a thousand foot view of, of, you know, who you are, where you come from, and, and why you wrote this book. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how far back do we go? Um, I was raised in California, um, kind of high desert, born um, in Bishop and lived in Mammoth, kind of, you know, ski area. Um, and then my family moved to little town to Hatchby. So we lived there and my family were all small business owners kind of, I was the first girl in my family in the line of women to ever graduate high school. Um, so I went on to go to college and um, had a passion for snowboarding. So I wanted to compete. And um, so I moved up to Mammoth after college and started competing. And then um, I'm not a big fan of, comp I, I, I don't know. Anyway, I, I just kind of went, eh, I'd rather teach. So I ended up going in and teaching. Um, I didn't like the pressure of competing. So I enjoyed teaching so much more. So I started teaching snowboarding. And then I ran into this, you know, weird guy, Brian, at church who kept bugging me. And the next thing you know, we're backpacking all over, uh, you know, the upper, um, the backcountry there, the, the high country. And uh, fell in love, got married. And um, he decided he wanted to join the military. So that's kind of kind of my background but yeah, yeah. He, uh, he he was an interesting guy too i mean like he was a, a, a chess savant he was a, a professional poker player um and, and he was actually working or he was making money as a professional poker player before he went in the military right yeah when we met he was actually playing online poker for a living so that he could ski during the day um, which I thought, okay, you know, this guy's probably making minimum wage and then, you know, having to pay for his tickets. Like, this is really lame. He should be up on the hill with us, you know, all of us instructors making, you know, good money, like, you know, $12 an hour, <laughs> uh, plus tips sometimes. So, um, <laughs> come to find out, no, he was making a lot of money and, um, yeah, he had grown up um, heavily involved in chess, and um, him and his his older brother, uh, when they were kids, like eight, nine, ten years old, were beating full grown adults who were good chess players. They just were very good. And Brian ended up winning uh, second at nationals when he was, I believe, eleven or twelve years old. Um, so he would fly all over the country and do these tournaments and. Yeah, he was well known throughout the uh, Tacoma area in Washington State. 
Um, yeah. And so you guys got married before Brian went into the military, right? Yes. And, and had you had your children prior to that point or, or, or did it happen? We did. Yeah, we, um, we got married and we stayed in Mammoth for a year. We had our first son, Ezekiel, then we moved and we had our second son, um, Isaac. And then um, the, the market started crashing in 2008. Um, and then uh, because <laughs> these, Brian and I both had degrees, but we hadn't used our degrees. Mm-hmm. We really, they were useless at that point because nobody was hiring. And if you didn't have any experience with the degree you had, then, I mean, you couldn't get hired anywhere because either you, you had not enough experience Um, you were underqualified or you were overqualified. So you couldn't get a job at a warehouse, but you also couldn't get a job with your degree. So we were just stuck. So he joined the military when Isaac was, I want to say one and Ezekiel was two. So how'd you feel about that when when he decided to join? You know, he'd always wanted to do it. He grew up um, just dreaming of becoming a seal or a green beret. And at that point he was having to, um, you know, he's trying to find a way to make money. He was miserable doing the online poker at that point. And he, you can just tell, I mean, mean, men need to be out doing something. And it was like, if this makes him happy, then, hey, I'm getting a happy guy home at the end of the day. So great. Um, So I, I was all about it. If that's what would get him, you know, out of the funk of just being stuck at home with me and the kids, then, I mean, I had no problem with it, you know. Was he planning on doing special forces selection prior to that, or, or did that come along as he did? That, that kind of came along. I expected it just because of who he was. He was really intense, needed to constantly have something going on. And the minute he went in and he became a 68 whiskey, so he was um, a medic, he got um, moved into the um, – what was it, the cash out at um, Fort Carson. And within a month or two, he was bored. He was starting to create his own little side businesses. You know, he was making little silver coins and buying all this equipment to like sell stuff on eBay. And and, I mean, he was bored out of his mind. (laughs) You know, he had like three side jobs. So um, when he goes, well, I, you know, would you care if I go to SFAS? I was like, well, if that's going to make you happy and that's what you really want to do, go for it. So he spent, you know, several months training and within, um, I want to say about a he, we just got into Carson in August, and I want to say by the next fall, he was already at SFAS. Wow. So and it happened fast. What kind of changes did you see in him and, and, you know, whether it be changes in your relationship or changes as a father or, or, or changes just in his was, – was, were there any changes in his personality as, as he went through this process? Um. Not really, other than I could see him going from staying at home and being on the computer all the time versus him out doing this stuff. He was just much happier, much more in his element and back to the person I had met. Um, There's just something about someone being stuck on a computer at home, you know, feeling fairly helpless and trying to figure out how to support their family versus someone who's just full steam ahead, living the dream. You know, he'd always wanted to do this. And it was like, yeah do it. 
Um, so, but as far as he hadn't, you know, deployed, so there weren't those kind of changes where he was affected by combat or anything at that point, right. you know. You know, the, re- the reason I asked that is because a lot of the guys at home, I mean, they're going through a much different kind of transition where they're transitioning out, out of the military into civilian life. And I think like one of the mistakes they make is that they get themselves into a position that doesn't match their personality so much, you know, and, and maybe sitting behind a desk isn't the best thing or, 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 or anything like that. So I think, you know, it's, it's always good to kind of highlight how much happier you can be if you find something that that meshes well with who you are and kind of fits your identity better you know yeah oh absolutely and you know that's i think when a lot of times you get out of the military a lot of these guys are inherently risk takers Mm -hmm. and you know you you've got these guys jumping out of airplanes you've got them doing all these things that most civilians don't do or would you know just the idea of it would scare them to death Mm -hmm. and so they need to find some happy medium you know where they can be in the civilian world but they can also um have you know an exciting career that isn't just behind a desk in front of a computer you know that there's challenges to it um you know and, and sometimes that means pushing yourself outside your comfort zone things you 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 know, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Um, so he gets through all of that and, 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 you know, he joins a team and, and, uh, how long was it until he went on his first deployment? Well, after SFAS, we moved to Fayetteville and, you know, the Q course, we, we got there, we got to Fayetteville in 2012. Um, and he graduated, uh, in, I want to say, April of 2015 and went pretty much directly to Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, he was on a B team, so he wasn't really going out and doing, you know, any sort of risky missions for the most part. I mean, yeah, they would still occasionally have, you know, incoming, you know, mortars or whatever coming mm-hmm. into the base where he was. But for the most part, he it, it wasn't a heavy combat deployment for him. Um, so he was there just for a couple months, kind of at the end of, um, a deployment when he joined the B team, just kind of help him out, came back, went straight to Ranger school, um, probably about a month after he got home from that deployment and was gone, you know, three months in the woods at Ranger and then came home, um, for a month and then deployed straight to Africa for six months. Wow. And and so, you know, he's been on several deployments. Um, you know, you mentioned in the book that you didn't really get that that feeling of, you know, I, for lack of a better word, dread with the other deployments. But with the the faithful, he did one other deployment to to Africa before the fateful one. Um, could you describe that? Um, you know, I, I know you you like I said, you mentioned that. You didn't have, it was, it was, wasn't so bad until this last one. And, and before he left with this last one, um, you know, you felt something. Yeah. The, the, you know, the deployment to Afghanistan, it was just like, all right, see you in a few months, whatever, have fun. Um, hope you get outside the wire a little bit. Um, second one, you know, he left. Same thing. It was just like, hey, have fun. See you in six months. And it was, you know, he told me, I don't know what it's going to be like over there. He had a thing for cheap phones. 
I didn't know if that was going to work out on the continent of Africa, and it didn't. Um, so I didn't hear from him for maybe a month, I want to say, or several weeks um, after he left. And it, it didn't cross my mind to even be concerned. Um, you know, um, I was busy with the kids, and I figured if there was an issue, he would call me. Um, and yeah, he, he ended up calling me on the David's phone a couple times and he was, you know, calling me from everybody else's phone. Um, so yeah, that deployment, there were no just gut checks for me at all. Um, but the, the last deployment, I mean, even the days leading up to it, it just, it felt wrong. And when I dropped him off at the airport, I was like panicked, which was odd. Um, it just, I would never, I, I had never even thought to be concerned before. Um, and I know a lot of wives had told me that like, oh, you know, I worried all the time when he was gone and I'm not a worrier. So I just never had any concern. So to me, it was really alarming when I felt that way as he left. And he was heading to Niger, right? Like, yeah, second second one to Niger. We didn't even know there was there was really anything going on in Niger at the time, right? Right. I mean, he'd been down. His first deployment was to Marathi, which is southern Niger, closer to the Nigeria border. Um, and I thought that area would have a larger pocket of terrorism, just because Nigeria is more dangerous, um, at least to my knowledge at the time. Um, I didn't know that they were going to be so close to Mali, and I didn't know as much about Mali as I do now. So I didn't realize that it was just the Wild West out there and that they were having all of these attacks. So when he said, oh, I'm going to Wallam, we'll be more northwest, I thought, oh, well, they're probably not going to see anything at all if they didn't see anything down near Nigeria, you know? Right. And so how long was he on that deployment before um, before the incident happened? He left, I want to say it was either, I'd have to look at my buckets. It was either the 26th or 28th of August. Mm-hmm. It was right there. And he, you know, he was killed on October 4th. So it was not long, five weeks. Yeah. And, and what happened there? What, what, what went down? Um, well, they were doing several just um, kind of day-long trips down to, I mean, they hadn't been in country that long. I mean, when you're talking about them flying out on the 28th, by the time they go in through, um, you know, I think they go in through Spain and then Niamey, the capital of Niger, and then they go to their base. So by the time they actually got to their base, I think about two weeks had passed. And then they do the transition and then they have the chain of command filming their National Geographic. Mm-hmm. And so they really had only gotten maybe two or three missions in when they were sent out on this mission. And at that point, they had only done um, pretty much what the first initial part of this was that led to this is they had gone um, on a one day mission up to this village called Tilawa near the Mali border, which it wasn't super close to the Mali border. It was just kind of on the edge before um, they would run out of roads there. So it was still kind of on their main path, their main patrol path. So they just did a patrol down there, patrol back. And so that's what they were supposed to be doing this time. Um, And they went down there and on their way back, 
they got turned around. They got a call from those higher up the chain saying, hey, we basically got a piece of intelligence saying that this terrorist, Dondu Shefu, may be up in the vicinity of Mali now, and we want you guys to go up there. We believe there's a terrorist campsite, and we want you to create a northern blocking position. And they went, hey, we can't do that, not with trucks. Our trucks move five miles an hour max in that sand. And we've got guys on motorcycles who can go 25 miles an hour. I mean, we're not blocking anyone if we go up there. Um, this isn't a mission we can do. And not to mention the fact that there was no built-in Kazakh. There was no QRF. There was no assets available to them in that area. So they said, how about we call up our friend, our friends up at Arlet, bring them in, and then we'll have built-in Kazakh. And, you know, and we can act as the QRF. And, and then this is a feasible um, thing because they can act as a blocking position. They, they can easily block from the northern position and keep people from crossing the border. So that was kind of the plan. Um, so they got turned around and sent uh, moving north up towards the Mali border. And while this is going on, Back at headquarters, there's all these VTCs going on, Team Arlet and the Lieutenant Colonel and Colonel and, you know, all these commanders are working on setting up this multi-team raid, as they called it. And um, in the end, my husband's team moved 10 hours through the dark. They were having to, you know, the captain um, of the team had to get out and walk the vehicles up. And I mean, this just turned into a huge, you know, what do they call it? Foo bar. Um, because by the end, they got out there and the um, they were notified that the uh, Helleborn unit was turned around, which left them up near the Mali border with no Kazvac, no QRF, absolutely no assets. They had one drone in the sky that was running out of fuel. Um, and it wasn't the type of drone that any had any sort of weapons or infrared or anything. Yeah. So, you know, they had eyes on the ground, but not really. I mean, that, those drones can't see anything. Um, so that's what they were left with. They pushed back and said, hey, we want to return to base. They were told, no, you cannot return to base. We're pushing you ahead. Um, so they basically were left out there alone with no options but to finish, um, finish the mission alone. And they did. And of course, by then you're talking 10 trucks through nowhere Africa, known as the Wild West, where it is just filled with terrorists. And of course they're seen because the only people up there are terrorists and they're all on motorcycles and you've got an eight vehicle convoy moving through the night. Um, it's just, you know, if you've ever been in the desert and I grew up, you know, in deserts, it's, I mean, one truck goes by at night and you know whether their lights are on or not. You know, you know where they are. So eight yeah. trucks. Yeah. In the Sahara, you're going to notice them. So that's what happened. They were very much noticed. And by the time they were on their way home, they were set upon by between one and two hundred terrorists and were trapped on the road. We're talking about 11 soldiers. Yes. One to two hundred terrorists on the road. Yes. And granted, there were the Nigerian partner forces, but as we know, when it comes to partner forces, they're usually 17, 16, maybe 18 if you're lucky. Um, and this, this was a new partner force. They, they were just 
starting to be trained. And so when the bullets flew, most of them took off, including the first person to take off was the interpreter. So there was no communication. I want to encourage everybody to, to really get the book Sacrifice because, you know, Michelle lays this out in, in expert fashion in the book, lays out all the circumstances. But, you know, what I want to turn the interview to right now is your life afterward, right? Because, you know, you talk about, you know, seeing the men in uniform come up to your house, which you had a premonition about prior to that. And at that point, you know, you're a young mom, you're by yourself in the world, you've got, you know, one son on the spectrum, you've got another young son, and, you know, your world is completely turned upside down. Um, uh, You know, I I hate asking about this, because I feel like every time somebody asks you about this, you have to relive it, but but what was that like for you? Um, You know, it's funny, because... I always say, you know, I'm an adult. I can handle this. Brian's an adult. Because we're both adults, it's fine. You know, but when it comes to the kids, that's where it's, it's the hardest for me um, is to watch my kids have to grow up so fast, you know, um, because that's, you know, I actually was talking about this with another soldier Um recently in an interview, we were talking about how, you know, men come back and they're so frustrated with their kids because they've, they've dealt with adults, you know, they're, they're so used to their soldiers. So they're yelling at their kids, you know, just follow orders, just, you know, do what you're supposed to do. And, and you've seen these kids in third world countries who are so responsible. And so, you know, and I said, but one thing we fail to recognize until we're in the position I'm in is that what makes them responsible and what makes them um, learn that is going through something like this, something that makes them have to grow up. And you don't want your kids to ever have to go through that because it, it that year, you know, um, and I'm going to try not to get upset, but it was no more Santa Claus, no more, um, no more magic, you know? Yeah. So my kids were done with it. And having to tell them about Brian was the worst day of my life. Not the day I learned that he was dead. It, w- it was the next day when I told them. Yeah. And, you know, it, it's hard because people, I think, in general, when, when they see somebody like you go through this and they know you personally – they, they want to be there for a time period, but then things kind of pull back. And I, I even think that in some ways, you know, people who are, are friends, they, they almost don't know how to approach you anymore, you know, and, and, and yeah. there's that kind of feeling. And, and um, I can't imagine that kind of loneliness, you know, dealing with that, dealing with the children, you know, luckily having family there who's kind of going through the same thing with you, but also kind of going through that, that same thing where people just kind of don't know how to approach you about this subject. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. You really have to, you know, you always see those, you know, inspirational quotes, become your own, you know, hero, become your own. And I'm thinking God, don't ever hope that you have to, Right. Because I know what that is, and it's absolute hell. 
Um, I'm grateful that I'm strong enough to pull it off. I'm glad that I don't crumble for my kids, you know, but yeah, it, it's pretty much just me. Yeah. You and know, then, and I'll keep going. I'm sorry. Oh, just, and that, that's great that I can handle it. And Brian, we used to talk about it all the time. He'd say, I am confident in doing the job I do because I know no matter what happens to me, I'll always, if I, you know, as if I'm coming back or whether I'm not, the house will always be the same. The kids will always be in a stable environment. My house is set, you know, and since he's left, every time I start to stumble or I start to, you know, feel like I'm falling apart, I remember that. And I'm like, no, you know, he knew who he married and, you know, you marry your equal. And if that's true, you know, as I say in the book, then I'm a beast. I'm good. I've got this. Like it sucks sometimes and I fall apart. But most days, you know what? I'm fine. It, it's amazing that, you know, you guys found each other. And, and, you know, one of the things I say to this audience all the time is, you know, you have to choose your partner wisely. And, and you know, I think he was very lucky to have you. Your children are very lucky to have you. And, you know, his, his whole team was lucky to have you too, because having you at home probably kept him in the mindset that he needed to be in order to do the job. Yeah. He needed to know that day that if he laid down his life for them, that everything was good, you know, that he could do that and not worry. And uh, I, I have no doubt that ran through his mind because I know that those guys created a blocking position to let the rest of the team out. And um, I'm fine with that as long as he died on his own terms and made that choice. Um, but, you know, and, and me and the kids talk about that all the time. Like I, I try and reiterate to them, do you know how lucky you are that you not only have one parent who cares so much, but that you had two who actually cared? Most parents, most kids don't get to have that. So be grateful. How are they doing? <laughs> they're doing really good. They're just, you know, they're phenomenal kids. Ezekiel at this point, um, despite being on the spectrum, he thinks it's great that he gets to go in the IEP special ed class. Mm -hmm. um, and he tries to help the other kids. He's a straight A student in high school. Um, just brilliant. Um, and so he feels, you know, he's, he's got a really good heart after what we've been through. He tries to help the other kids. He feels bad that some of them don't get all the, um, you know, homework and stuff. So he's, he's just a sweetheart and he, um, you know, he's into water polo and swimming team. And now he's getting into jujitsu. He wants to be a green beret like his dad and, and same with his younger brother, you know, they're just best friends and they take care of me. Um, they're just, you know, they're going to be phenomenal human beings. So I'm happy. They're That's very so happy cool. with them. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so the other aspect of the story, there, there, there's the very personal element of the story, you know, the pain that you've gone through, which, which comes through in the book. But layered on top of all this, this became a national incident. Um, and, you know, it, we've had, it came, became a national incident several times over um, with the politics centered around it, but also the media's approach in, in you know, publishing certain things related to the murder itself. And, right. and, um, you know, maybe we'll, we could start with that week when president Trump called you up and, and, you know, gave his, his, um, condolences, um, 
I know it was a, a very positive phone call for you. And, and, you know, he, he, uh, had you guys come out and stay at his hotel and everything like that. But at the same time that led to there, there was another incident with another, um, widow who, you know, didn't have as positive of an experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and for me, it's interesting because I've always been, you know, it's funny, Brian and I, we were so different politically. He was Mr. Libertarian and, you know, go against the flow and I bother voting, you know, it's just going to be the same terrible people in there. And <laughs> I was like, oh, no. Um, but after he died, it made me very cognizant of, you know, I don't want any of this politicized in his name because he was very non-political. And um, so it was hard to watch it become politicized and everyone's, oh, it's Trump's Benghazi. Oh, it's this. And, I, you know, for me, that was hard because, you know, presidents don't know what a 12 man team in the middle of nowhere Africa is doing. This was the right. responsibility of the generals, the lieutenant colonels, everybody who was hiding, um, hiding everything that happened. And, um, you know, no matter which president would have called, you know, whether it was Clinton, Trump, Obama, like the fact that somebody called, I was so grateful that they took the time out. I mean, why in the world would a president call me in my entire life? That blew my mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so many families over the years haven't received phone calls from anyone, I, I'm, you know, I, I know countless other widows and other gold star families, and I'm the only one I know who has received a phone call from, you know, a president. So the, that to me, I just thought, okay, that's, that's mind blowing. Um, but at the same time, watching how, you know, he's the most powerful man in the world and you know, the, the other widow said, hey, you know, this this hurt my feelings. And he would then attack her on Twitter. I just thought, she's a widow. She, she lost her husband. She's been through hell. Mm -hmm. She has, she just lost her whole world. You have the world. Just let it go. Yeah. You know, and, and she had so many other things going on that, you know, she, it, it's just, why, why turn this into a big Twitter war? It just made him look bad, not her. And, and the people who turned around and attacked her, I just went, come on. Yeah. You know, it's, it's not all about Trump, no matter how much you love the guy and support him. Like he doesn't know you exist. Don't attack other people for him. Right. Like, right. And, just, and the media coverage of that took away what, you know, I think everybody should have been focusing on, which is the fact that we lost a lot of great warriors that day, you know, and yeah. the families and, and remembering them and the sacrifice they made. And, you know, I think that uh, it, it's crazy how things turn in a dime on the, in, the, in this country, whenever politics get involved, it, it, it kind of takes our focus off of what we should be concerned with, you know? Yeah. It, it's amazing. You know, I, I did a two hour interview recently and, and I uh, went through all this stuff. And the minute I said, you know, and, and I brought up this this little piece where I was like, you know, Trump Trump and this gal. And, and I talked about it. And people just, I mean, that was the only thing they focused in on. And I think that's a huge problem in this country is we're so quick to like, oh, you said something negative or positive about this, this um, president. And then it instantly explodes into this ugly political thing 
when what we should be focusing in on is, I mean, these are soldiers who gave their lives for our freedom. And what's the real story here? I hope it isn't the the president because they're on TV all day, every day. Like, you know, um, this, this story with my husband, it shouldn't have been about that. It should have been about, hey, what happened to these guys? Why were they out there? Who sent them out there? You know, and you're not going to get those answers if you're so caught up in, you know, mudslinging towards, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans and trying to prove who wins because nobody wins. Right. Exactly. And then, you know, the media, like I, as I alluded to, kind of stepped in again and and they actually published a video of of your husband being killed. Um, it was a body cam video that the ISIS uh, fighters got a hold of and then used it as pop propaganda and CBS news published it. Um, what was like, what was that like for you? Has anybody ever, you know, apologized for that or, or, or said anything to you about, you know, that they're sorry that, 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 that got out or. Um, nobody who put it out or at, the, who would make those command decisions has apologized. People at lower levels in private have said, hey, sorry about that. Um, the problem with that is that once it is out, it becomes public domain. And we as families, and I've been looking into it recently, there is nothing we can do. So anybody can take that and use it. So whether they create a video game or they create, um, or, or, you know, that they you know, they, they want to use it in a, a TV show or a news report or whatever. They can grab that footage and throw it on there. And there's nothing I can do about that, um, which is just mind boggling because the fact that like I have to flip on the TV and accidentally see my husband's body drug through the dirt over and over or see him shot in the head over and over is just horrific. And to me, it blows my mind that people don't have the common sense to realize that what they're doing is terror. Right. You don't have to kill somebody to terrorize somebody. All you have to do is show them their um, loved one being killed. And that is terror. So yeah, my family is terrorized every time something like that pops up. And so are the other families, whether it's just a clip from that, or it's the full thing. It doesn't matter. Either way, you are actively terrorizing the families. And I've heard people say, oh, well, it was done tastefully. It's never tasteful. Mm-hmm. If it's footage from that day, it's distasteful. And it is you choosing to terrorize the family members that are left behind. Your because mother- we did not condone it. Your mother-in-law actually came home after a long day of work, kind of went to watch the news, and she saw the whole video by accident, right? Yes. That's, that's absolutely horrible. And I, I'm sorry that that happened to you guys. And I am so sorry that, that you have to go through that. And, you know, for the audience at home, you know, when you see these things, um, you know, we've kind of gone through a real time thing with, with the Afghanistan withdrawal, people posting pictures of, of people they knew there. And, and, you know, obviously the community having to come in and say, you know, OPSEC, take those pictures down. But for things like this, I mean, it should be common sense. Don't share that. Don't don't post it. Don't put it anywhere. You know, uh, one of the guys was coming home on a plane, and the guy next to him said, "Hey, here's a cool video," and and showed it to him, and and he was actually there, uh, and and you know, um, 
had to go through that traumatic experience and reliving that on a flight. Um, so, yeah. so just, you know, to the people out to, uh, in the audience, use common sense um, and, and, you know, treat people the way you'd like to be treated. And that, that's not just your interpersonal interactions. I think we all got to develop a little bit more empathy and, and, and less sociopathic behavior when it comes to these types of things. Yes, absolutely. You know, um, uh, just slipped my mind what I was going to say. <laughs> That's okay. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it was really smart, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so there is this subject, you know, what were they doing there? Um, and, it, you know, it seems like the military had tried to pin everything on, on Captain Perizzoni. Um, it, it seemed like they, they were trying to use him as a scapegoat. Um, but at the end of the day, Captain Perizzoni actually, you know, he, he, he was very heroic in his actions on that day. And actually, you know, if it weren't for him, probably everybody would have died. Um, what, where are you in terms of, of figuring out what actually happened? And, and again, I want people to get the book and, and kind of read through this as well. But, but, you know, has anybody kind of come to you and, and shed any further light on this? Um, as far as what they were doing, what they were doing in that area and why were they there without any support? And, and, and I mean, nothing, nothing more than what, you know, I've learned from the guys and, and even there, like we were just supposed to go up and, you know, kind of check out the campsite and, you know, keep people from fleeing across the border. I mean, that was basically it. It was, they received a piece of SIGINT and they just felt like it was so important that we go up there. Um, and what I, I, I mean, I don't really know. I don't know if they were hoping to get lucky that maybe they would run across the this terrorist. Um, if they were just careless and aggressive um, and the leaders had nothing to risk, except, you know, if, if, they, if the team was sent up there on their command during their command, they might... Um, and and the team ran across something that led them to this this kidnap victim. Then maybe that that would earn this this lieutenant colonel or the colonel a promotion. I mean, that's all I can guess is that they hoped there was some reward at the end if these guys stumbled on something and got lucky, because my husband's team was in country just on a by with and through mission. So they were there to just train. Um, the Nigerian partner forces so that they could protect their own borders from the growing threat of violent extremism. So that was really their mission set. Um, they aren't the type of team that should have been out hunting down terrorists. So the mission didn't make sense, especially without any sort of um, backup or support. You know, it, it just, it's, it's insane. Right. And, and none of the higher ups have, have, you know, come and said, you know, this is my fault or anything like that. Nobody is actually taking any accountability for this, right? No, absolutely not. It's it's pretty incredible. So, um, yeah, everybody, everybody who's come and apologize are those who were wrongly, um, you know, punished, which is ironic. They just went, sorry, I didn't bring your husband home. Even the guy, you know, Major Van San, who was on paternity leave, he goes, I'm so sorry that, you know, I wasn't there at the time. Maybe I could have changed something and I could have brought your husband home. 
And he was a wreck, you know, and Captain Perazzini, I'm so sorry I didn't bring your husband home as he's laying in the hospital bed um, from a gunshot wound and a, you know, TBI. So those are the kind of apologies I got. The closest I got from the lieutenant colonel who ordered the team on the mission was like, hey, you know, eight months after the fact, hey, sorry, your husband died. And by the way, you know, it was worth it. And I would still make the same call. So there was no explanation. It was just justification and kind of an insincere, like, hey, sorry, he died. So it, it, it was just, you know, and I found out later, I'm the, it was I'm the only person who he visited from all four families. I'm the only person. He didn't visit any of the other parents. He didn't visit any of the other widows. He didn't visit any of the other siblings, nobody. Um, So yeah, it it was pretty incredible. It's crazy to me because I mean, it just seems like, you know, having served in the military and having had accountability drummed into my soul in the Marine Corps and, you know, people like your husband and his team who, who live and breathe that, um, it amazes me how the higher up seem to get by, by pawning things off on others. And, and, you know, we're seeing that as a common thread right now, um, you know, with, with current events, we, we've seen, you know, literally one service member take any kind of uh, or ask any questions about Afghanistan and, and, and what happened there. And he's currently in the brig. Um, And, and we see this happen over and over again. And, and, you know, what in your mind needs to change um, for us to, to, to advance past this, for us to, to improve. I've thought a lot about this. Um, one huge thing I've thought about is, you know, how how would we change our system in a way that we and not just say, okay, we're going to demand accountability, but we have a, a functioning system that will um, allow for accountability. And I know that, you know, unfortunately, because it's kind of a top-down command system, it's, you know, I'll cover you, you cover me type thing among the officers. So one thing I thought about was, you know, when, when my husband went through the Q course, and I know this is the case with a lot of different um, special forces and, and other courses you go through, as you work with people, you have to do peer evaluations. And those peer evaluations will determine whether or not you move ahead in that course. If you can't pass your peer evaluations, you don't pass the course and that's all there is to it. And I thought, why can't we have a system where, yeah, you know, you go before a board before you, before you advance, you know, as far as, you know, before you get your star or your second star or whatever. But first of all, those under your command, including those who have dealt with you, um, who are not officers, can you know why can't we take all of these people who have been directly affected by your command decisions and have personally interacted with you anonymously um, do peer evaluations on you? Yeah. Because and and if you don't pass those with like say seventy percent or eighty percent and above, then you automatically are delayed. Yeah. You know that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, like it just it's something we're seeing over and over again. And, and, and it just, it doesn't seem like it's getting any better with the current culture and, and some sort of drastic change needs to happen. And I think that's definitely a, a great suggestion. Um, what, 
what's your advice to others going through this or who may go through this in the future? Um, Because podcasts, at least for now, are going to last forever. And um, Mm -hmm. I don't think war is ever going to end. Um, What what would you say to a future Gold Star wife, Gold Star mother, Gold Star husband um, who, who, who might be going through the same thing? Um, several things. And I think this goes for everybody. Um, you know, if something in your gut is telling you, and, you know, I use this with Ezekiel when I was told he will never live outside the home. He will never. Listen, I don't care what the experts say. Mm-hmm. You're the only expert on that person. If they're your loved one, you're the expert on them. So no matter what the generals are telling you, no matter what um, the doctors are telling you, they may be experts, but you are an expert on that person. So if something's telling you they're off, then you know what? You're the expert and they're wrong. Um, And you figure that out. And don't let anybody tell you what you can and can't do. Because, I mean, I may have a science degree. That may be what my piece of paper says. But in the end... um, I'm, I'm an expert on whatever it is that I choose. I'm sorry. My, everything's blowing up um, okay. <laughs> all at once. Um, you know, if I need to become a journalist, then I will become a journalist. I don't care if somebody says that I'm not and I don't get to be. You know, when it came right down to it, that's what I needed to be to do what was right by these men on the team and to do what was right by me and my family and the other families. So if if I need to find out the truth for myself, I am more than capable of that. And so is everybody else. Just because you're a four star general or a three star general doesn't mean you're the only one who can get it right. So, um, you know, you can talk to the men, you know, you can like trust them. Um, trust your gut and, you know, be what you need to become. I don't care how old you are or whatever. I mean, I'm learning to become a social media guru right now. So that's it. Like you, you know, you choose whether or not you're the victim and you choose whether or not you handle it and you get over it. And yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to hurt. You're going to cry and scream and want to quit, but get back up and keep doing it. So you are an amazing woman. And, uh, you know, this book, uh, sacrifice a gold star widows fight for the truth. It was fabulously written. Um, you know, it, uh, uh, you'll feel the pain, but you'll also, you know, get what seems to be a highly technical expertise on, on what went down. And I think it's, it, it's a great book. Are you planning to write more? Yeah, I, um, I, I'm wanting to write a fiction next, but we'll see. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely want to write, I want to write more. Um, I did love doing this because there's something about writing for a group of men who were stuck in this situation and that I felt that by doing this, they had someone they could trust and rely on and, um, almost to help them helped me get better. Um, Yeah. And so that, that was, that was huge to me. Um, Cause from day one, it was, if, if I interview you guys, um, I didn't make them sign any contracts or anything. It was just, you need someone you can trust. And at any point you're getting nervous about this, just pull it out from under me. And that's okay. Um, because this is your life and your career and um, we can change names. We can change anything you want. 
Um, and up until I sign on the dotted line with a publisher, it's not my story, it's your story. Mm -hmm. So they got to choose what we did with it, whether I handed it to other people, whether I kept it to myself, that was their choice. That's amazing. So, um, you know, I think with everything, where can people find the book? It's everywhere. It's Amazon. It's yeah. I mean, I've got the audible, the Kindle, the hardback, it'll be paperback soon. Well, in May and then, um, Barnes and Noble. A lot of people just walk right into Barnes and Noble and they've got them there. Um, yeah. And then online at Target and Walmart and, you know, all over the place. And where can people find you on social media? Uh, at Michelle Black 71. So awesome. that's where awesome. I am. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, like I said, I, I have so much admiration for you. Um, and, and, you know, can't imagine going through what you've been through. And, you know, I wish the best to you, to your two sons, to the rest of your family as well. And, uh, you know, as, as you continue your writing journey, please keep in touch because I'd love to have you back on and talk to the audience. Is there anything you'd want to finish off with here? Um, not really. Just, uh, yeah, my, my biggest message is always, you know, do, do what you're passionate about. Go for it. It's, you know, it's scary and it's big. But if it's going to make you happy try it out. You never know. You might be really, really good at it. That's so. awesome. That's awesome. And you never know where happiness is going to come from. You know, the situation going through the worst period of your life to, you know, finding something that you love doing, I, you know, that, that's the way life works. Sometimes you just have to turn the corner and the light's right there. So, yeah. Well, thank Absolutely you again, true. Michelle. And uh, to everybody out there, I hope you guys got a lot out of this interview. I definitely highly recommend you check out the book, Sacrifice by Michelle Black. And um, till next time, guys, get out there and live your best lives while you can. This is Chris Albert and Michelle Black, and we are out. All right, guys, I hope you got a lot out of that interview. Um, I know that I got a lot out of the conversation. Michelle is an absolutely extraordinary woman. And, you know, like I said at the beginning of the show, I think we need to hear the perspective of, of more Gold Star families. You know, if the United States is going to continue doing what it does, we need to know and we need to understand the sacrifices that, that we're making, but more importantly, the sacrifices that families like these are making in terms of losing their loved ones. Um, when we decide to put them in danger, we need to make sure that we are giving them all the support we need. Um, and beyond that, you know, also learning a bit of empathy and compassion here. Uh, sharing videos of service members being killed is absolutely disgusting. And if you do that, you are just contributing to an absolutely horrible environment for these Gold Star families. Remember that the person that you hear about on the news is an actual person with a family, with people who love them, with, with ho who had hopes, who had dreams, who was trying to do something. And think of them as people, not just as numbers. And that's all I got, guys. Hope you're all doing well. I love you all. I'll be talking to you next week. This is Chris Albert with the Warrior Soul Podcast, and I am out.